welcome to Is Anybody Out There? A podcast series about loneliness brought to you by The Connectory. I'm Jeremy Warshaw. And I'm Judy Tomello. Today's episode is called Being Alone. And I'm going to start off by asking you, Jeremy, for your interpretation of this quote. Go ahead. Go on. It's a joy to be hidden, but disaster not to be found. What would you say that's about? Mm. Um, my last bar of Cadbury's chocolate? No. It's <laughs> best I could do. No, that's not it, but I love it. It was actually something the British psychoanalyst Donald Winnicott said in the mid-1900s. I had read Winnicott's work growing up in London. I think everybody does read him at school. But this particular quote, I only recently came across after reading a book by Dr. Mark Epstein, who is both a practicing psychiatrist in New York City and a practicing Buddhist. He's really well known for his fusion of Eastern spirituality and Western psychotherapy. What's what's his take on the Winnicott quote? Well, he speaks about feeling alone or isolated in all of his books and about loneliness too. And the joy of being hidden here refers to periods in our lives when we are alone or even experiencing loneliness because You know, at at times it can be a sensual and indulgent experience to be on one's own. But of course, we're social animals at heart. So eventually we need to be found, but not simply as an object of someone's desire. Instead, we want our inner selves to be recognized and found and for that to be appreciated. But getting to that place is an ongoing process. And being alone, even when it doesn't feel so good, is actually part of that process of developing the self. Ah, and because our inclination is to say, in less lofty terms, I'm lonely and this sucks, so I've got to get out there and find someone, I suppose we're denying our ability to develop into our true self. And I guess that's when the disaster part comes in. Exactly right. Anyway, I was so fascinated by Mark Epstein after reading and hearing about him, particularly his non-typical approaches in dealing with emotions like loneliness, that I got in touch with him and asked him for an interview. And this is surely one of the pandemic silver linings. Mark happened to be isolating with his wife in upstate New York, and he probably had nothing better to do, so he said yes. (laughs) Fantastic. Whatever it takes. Let's hear it. Welcome, Mark, and thank you for agreeing to speak with me on this episode of Is Anybody Out There? I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So you are the author of books such as Thoughts Without a Thinker, Going to Places Without Falling Apart. Going to Pieces. Going going to Pieces Without Falling Apart. I'm sorry, Going to Pieces. We're not going to any places. We're not going anywhere. That's why I'm falling apart because I'm not going anywhere. But okay, Going to Pieces Without Falling Apart, Going on Being, Open to Desire, and then two more which I read during this period of isolation, The Trauma of Everyday Life, which... I believe identifies life's small traumas, such as fear and loneliness, as being part of the human condition. And the second book I recently read was, I think, the last one you wrote, which is Advice Not Given, 
a guide to getting over yourself, which at its core is about getting away from oneself by keeping one's ego at bay. Did I sum that up fairly correctly? Yeah, I think so. It's at least a way of uh, getting away from one's ego to get closer to oneself, I would say. So perhaps you can tell us a little bit about how you first became interested in Buddhism. Well, I actually chanced upon it. I, I wasn't looking for it necessarily. I found it early in my life, uh, my freshman year in college, actually, uh, when I met a girl who, uh, who I was interested in, who was taking an introduction to world religion class. I signed up for it because she was going. And we read one collection of Buddhist verse, which is called the Dhammapada, which was an ancient collection of Buddhist verse directed to householders, not to monks or nuns. And it, it jumped out at me. It was like, it talked about how important it was to train the mind. Hmm. And that said that the untrained mind was like a fish thrown on dry ground, flapping all of the time. And I immediately related to that. Hmm. So um, I became interested. There were other courses at college about Buddhism. There were spiritual bookstores in Harvard Square to go to uh, peruse. And I, uh, I lucked into uh, a graduate student who was teaching a psychology course, it was a man named Daniel Goleman, who later went on to become famous as the author of Emotional Intelligence. And he had already been to India, interested in Buddhism, and he directed me to people that he trusted. And I met Joseph Goldstein and Jack Kornfield and a former Harvard professor named Richard Alpert, who had become Ramdas. And I met them all in the, in the next few years. And they took me on. And I started sitting Buddhist meditation uh, retreats and so on. So I did all this before taking any classes in Western psychology and before deciding to become a psychiatrist. I uh, marinated myself, you might say, in Buddhism to start with. And then, then went on uh, much later to go to medical school and study uh, Western uh, psychotherapy, psychiatry, and so on. And, and this is particularly interesting because, as you said somewhere, that trauma is ubiquitous. I mean, we all suffer traumas of some kind, maybe not the very large ones, but certainly everyday traumas. And loneliness, too, is a fairly ubiquitous human condition. It's 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 visited us all really at some point. So how do we learn to live with loneliness in your methodology? How do we learn to live with it and find a way through it? Well, in, in terms of the the underlying current of trauma that's that's ubiquitous, as you say, uh, I sometimes say that if we're not suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, we're suffering from pre-traumatic stress disorder. Because, uh, you know, old age, illness, death, separation, loss, and loneliness, if we haven't experienced them already, we're bound to. It really is part of the human experience. And the main thing that I've learned from all of my meditation retreats is that try as hard as we might, we really cannot control everything. We can control a lot of things in the world and in life, but we can't control everything. So with the stuff that we cannot control, what we can only do is change the way we relate to whatever it is that's happening. So that's the great linking promise of both meditation and psychotherapy, that it is actually possible to change the way we relate to things, such as death 
or illness or old age or loneliness. So to look at loneliness in particular, since that's what you're asking about, in one way, we're all alone. You know, we're always alone. We're locked inside our own sense of self. And in another way, none of us are alone. We're all part of a, uh, an almost indescribable nexus that contains everything. And that when we overdo the feeling of loneliness, which we're all prone to do because we feel sorry for ourselves or we've been hurt in real ways, when we exaggerate the feeling of loneliness or when we cut ourselves off from the interconnected part, then we suffer more than we have to. So I think the first answer to the question is to contextualize the feeling of loneliness. Yes, it's there, and it's there in everyone, because there's a great wish, a great longing for connection, for union, for release. But part of the promise of being born into a human body and mind, according to the Buddhist side, is that we have just enough loneliness to motivate us to practice so that we don't drown in that feeling. So um, it it can motivate us towards uh, realizing our potential. Yes. I also have read that it's almost like a signal to us that we need more human connection, social connections in our life, or we need more meaningful social connections in our life. So I know loneliness does serve a purpose as well as being a crippling issue for many people. Yeah, it can go either way. There's a quote that I like, you know, one of the um, inspiring figures in my life is a British uh, child psychoanalyst named, named Donald Winnicott. Winnicott was one of the first child psychoanalyst. So he really paid attention to the child's experience and the mother's experience with her infants. And he was the first in the psychoanalytic tradition to really do that. Mm -hmm. But he has this beautiful quote uh, about loneliness. And he says, um, how can we be isolated without being insulated? Because he takes for granted a certain kind of isolation, but uh, the the exaggeration of it is to insulate us too much from each other, from the world. That's what the ego does to try to protect itself. But really what the ego has to learn how to do more is to open up, to let go. And that's where the possibility of connection comes in, even for lonely people. Mark, could I ask you to read an excerpt from your book, Going to Pieces Without Falling Apart, that has to do with feelings of emptiness? Of course. I'll read anything you ask me to read. Oh, good. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, This is from my book, uh, Going to Pieces Without Falling Apart. Our personal feelings of emptiness are like the low, guttural rumblings of the Tibetan monks chanting. At first, they are all we can hear. But then, slowly or sometimes suddenly, something sweet emerges out of the depths of our own minds. Gradually, the overtone fills our consciousness, and we cannot believe what we are hearing. Our own personal and self-centered emptiness yields to something more universal. 
the sparks of emptiness return to their source. This is the task that faces nearly all of us. We must learn how to be with our feelings of emptiness without rushing to change them. Only then can we have access to the still, silent center of our own awareness that has been hiding, unbeknownst to our caretaker selves, behind our own embarrassment and shame. When we tap into this secret storehouse, we begin to appreciate the two-faced nature of emptiness. It fills us with dissatisfaction as it opens us to our own mystery. As the Buddhist traditions always insist, if we look outside of ourselves for relief from our own predicament, we are sure to come up short. Only by learning how to touch the ground of our own emptiness can we feel whole again. Hmm. That is such a, a beautiful section. And, it, you know, I think we need to stop and listen to it, carefully listen to it. It really is so meaningful. But since I have you on the line, would you mind giving us a quick macro view about this belief? You know, I remember I remember writing that passage after being at a concert where these Tibetan monks who had learned this kind of overtone singing had performed. And at first you only hear the low guttural rumblings and they're doing this harmonic thing where if you listen carefully, suddenly at another octave up, you hear this sweet sound. And I remember first hearing the sweet sound and then all that, what I just wrote about sort of clicking into place. So um, from my own experience growing up with a, a sense of psychological emptiness, like not feeling as complete or as real or as comfortable, we might just say, with myself as I would have liked, I found that when I came to uh, meditation, when I discovered mindfulness and learned how to just be with my own experience, no matter what it was like, pleasant or unpleasant, you know, that by paying attention to that feeling of incompleteness, to that feeling of awkwardness, or we might say emptiness, that that was actually the way into myself. Uh, and that instead of pushing it away and feeling uh, shame about it or distraught about it, that just by leaving it alone, it opened up into something much more satisfying. So that's where I've been coming from ever since, that we have to start where we are and go from there. You know, this notion that we should sit with our emotions, even painful ones like loneliness, was something that Dr. Faye Alberti spoke about during her interview. I remember you asked her about techniques she uses when she experiences loneliness. And she said very specifically that one way for her to get through these feelings of isolation is to be more mindful, to really understand what it is she's feeling at that moment to almost ask herself what it is she physically needs. And only by sitting through these emotions can she then come up with answers. Exactly right. And I think by facing your feelings in order to understand what you're experiencing and what you might need in order to help yourself, that really resonated with me. 
because I think that in the West, when we're feeling eh, not so great, our instinct is to try and fix these feelings, get rid of them by popping pills or drinking too much or overeating, all the things that our bodies don't need and can actually leave us feeling, well, more empty and hollow than before. So there's a wonderful story in your book about the woman who lost her one-year-old child and mustard seeds. Would you mind telling us that story? Sure. It's one of the most moving stories that I found in the Buddhist literature. And it's about a woman named Kisigatomi, who the uh, local people see wandering around like a mad woman clutching the uh, corpse of her one-year-old child who's, who's died suddenly. And she wanders from house to house saying, won't somebody help me? My child has died. I need medicine for him. We have to bring him back to life, please. And people are scared of her because she's obviously losing her mind. But finally, someone says to her, well, there is somebody close by who knows about this kind of medicine because the Buddha is camping uh, with uh, some of his followers in a field close to this village. And they direct her to the Buddha, and she, she comes to him, still clutching the child. And he says, yes, actually, I do have medicine for this. But before I can give it to you, you have to go to the village and ask the people there if anyone can give you a mustard seed from a house where no one has ever been sick or died. So she's calmed by his presence and listens to him and takes on the task and goes back and knocks on all the doors. And of course, she can't find a house that hasn't known illness or death. And she comes back to the Buddha chastened. And he says something like, you thought you were the only one who's had to face this, but really we all have to face it. So here's what I can do for you. And then he lays out some early teachings for her, including some meditation instruction. If if we had a story like that about loneliness, people would realize that they're not alone. There are a lot of people who suffer from loneliness, and it visits every household, I think. So that's why I particularly loved that story. And what is it now that, now that you have studied Buddhism to such a great degree, what is it now that you believe how Buddhism can enrich Western approaches to psychology? Well, there's a couple of ways that I might answer that. What comes to mind immediately is that Buddhism is actually, at least for me, is incredibly optimistic. It doesn't have that reputation, you know, because the Buddha's Four Noble Truths, which were his first teachings about psychology, starts out with the statement that life is filled with dukkha, which is generally translated as suffering or unsatisfactoriness. But really, Buddhism is very optimistic. It says that Within each one of us, no matter how troubled, no matter how much trauma we've experienced, no matter how much anxiety we have, that within each one of us is the the dormant potential for inner peace or uh, nirvana, they would say, you know, uh, enlightenment or awakening, and that it's very accessible, that all one needs to do is to learn how to tolerate or train one's own mind. And then the, the very practical aspect of mindfulness, that there's a method of taking on even the, the horror of oneself, you know? Right. There's a method of 
learning how to hold uh, one's mind and one's feelings in a way that allows a kind of emotional maturity to come. Those are things that I have found uh, to be very helpful in my own life. I always reflect, I always think, all these silent retreats that I've gone on, and still, you know, I'm in my 60s now, but I, I try to go every year, at least for a week or two. And these retreats are designed really to accentuate the loneliness. They're silent. You're not allowed to make eye contact with anybody. Everything is done very, very slowly. As there's a lot of sitting meditation. You're really alone with your own um, terrors and your, you know, your own mind and body. And the great revelation of that is how connected one can feel being totally apart from other people. Nothing but the, the sun coming up, the sun going down, the wind blowing, the birds flying, you know, a walk on the, uh, on the road, sitting without moving with your own experience. The loneliness, while it can be intense and severe, it doesn't last. It's not the last word on who we are or what we're capable of. And one can be very alone and not lonely. True, but that's a loneliness that you've chosen to embark upon for a week, and then you know you will go home to your loving family and you know your your life. There are people who don't have that option. You're right. That's a chosen loneliness, and that's different than one that feels imposed. But that's again what I was saying. You know, we can't control everything, so uh, even when it feels like it's been imposed on us, sometimes we have to change the way we relate to it. But that's not to say that we should just accept the loneliness. I think people are capable of much more connection than they sometimes give themselves credit for. And the Buddha's Eightfold Path, he he doesn't just talk about meditation. He talks about right effort and right livelihood and right relationship. So um, sometimes people are so hurt or ashamed or afraid that they they won't reach out in the way that they need to reach out in order to be less lonely. And that's a very important element also. So let's talk a little bit about meditation and how it might help somebody in this case. Well, I told in the, in the book that you asked me to read from, I, I told a story about a good friend of mine, Sharon Salzberg, who has become a very uh, well-known and beloved mindfulness teacher. She started out with terrible, terrible loneliness. Her, um, her mother got sick and died in front of her when she was nine years old. Her father suffered from a mental illness and a couple of years later went into the mental health system and never came back. She was raised by grandparents who, who died when she uh, went away to college. She tells the story of reading a Peanuts cartoon in which Charlie Brown is talking to Lucy, the psychiatrist, who mm -hmm. ends up saying, you know what the problem is with you, Charlie Brown? The problem with you is you. The problem with you is you're you. And Sharon identified with that. And she ended up going to India and meeting all of these um, uh, Buddhist teachers who got her to meditate. And the big lesson for her was that she had to learn how to put down that shame-filled image of herself as the problem with her was her, 
and take chances in um, being with her own difficult feelings and also in relating to others. But she really got that courage and that encouragement from her meditation practice that started to make cracks in her self-image. That's uh, a lot of the way that I think meditation and psychotherapy work together. Many of us are hampered by the, the way we think about ourselves. And once we start to crack that open a little bit and realize that we're not who we think we are, then there's a possibility of change that comes creeping in. So what do you think is the difference between loneliness and aloneness? A pain. <laughs> pain, pain and distress. Um, and why do you believe that loneliness is on the rise in our society today? So I don't know if loneliness is really on the rise or if just talking about loneliness is on the rise, if a consciousness of loneliness is on the rise. But I think one of the downsides of the nuclear family is that in the way that many of us grow up in the West, all we have are the parents or the babysitter, you know? And so if, if the, the holding environment, which is another way Winnicott talks about it, if the emotional climate, if the relational home, those are all phrases that we could use, is inadequate, if the parents are drinking or depressed or just working all the time or too anxious about the child's well-being, then there's nobody to fall back on. There's no kind auntie or a cousin or, uh, you know, in the extended family, there's a greater chance that somebody, the grandmother, the great-grandmother, will, will step in and give that kind of adequate attention that, that nurtures a growing child's sense of cohesion mm -hmm. and trust. Right. And without that, in adult life, there can be a lot of insecurity and either a, a running away from intimate relationships or a kind of clinging to the ones that, uh, that, some, that a person finds, uh, clinging to the point of exhaustion of the other, which then feeds back and leads to more loneliness. Uh, but it can also come from one in which the parents are too involved so that the child never is left alone adequately to develop a, a kind of calm center in which they can unwind or in which they can play, etc. Yeah, I, I think you wrote, there was a line I liked very much, which is that you're paying relaxed attention to the everyday world, which I think really sums up what might take place in deep meditation and uh, meditative practice. The, the way I've been thinking about it now is that in paying relaxed attention to oneself and to the everyday world, a hidden kindness gets woken up inside of us. And that kindness, which can be applied or deployed towards oneself, but towards other people also who need us, That kindness is really the key, I think, to dealing with loneliness. Well, I thank you from the bottom of my heart. This has really been such a pleasure speaking with you. I've, I've read so much about you and from you, and it's just wonderful to hear your voice. Oh, it's a pleasure. I really do appreciate his point of view. If we could just be a little gentler with ourselves, less self-critical, and less driven by outcome, 
I think we might gain an acceptance of our situation instead of always trying to control it. Here's to being kinder and gentler with ourselves and others. I think now more than ever in this world. Join us next week for an episode on the power and importance of friendships. I'll be speaking with Lydia Denworth, a science journalist and author of a book called Friendship. It's a truly touching and insightful investigation of companionship, this essential bond that humans and animals alike need to thrive during a lifetime. Is Anybody Out There was created and written by Judy DeMello and Jeremy Warshaw. This episode was produced and edited by Christian Sawyer. Music by Seaplay Narmada. If you're enjoying this podcast, and we hope you are, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. And do subscribe wherever you download your podcasts. For more information about what you heard today, please visit theconnectory.com. Let's stay connected. <laughs>